Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 73 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Tamam Shud case, the mysterious death of Somerton Man, which has been called one of Australia's most profound mysteries. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. On December 1st, 1948, 71 years ago this week, a man quietly passed away on a beach in the town of Somerton in South Australia. In his pocket was a piece of paper with the mysterious phrase, Tamam Shud. It was torn from a book that had secret writing in a code, and doctors thought the man may have been poisoned. Who Somerton Man was and why he died has never been determined, but his death sparked a famous international mystery that remains to this day. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, uh, just to let you all know, since this is a, an Australian mystery, we decided we're going to be joined by a few of our friends from Australia this episode. Right. Uh, one of StarQuest's other podcasts is The Catholics of Oz, and a couple of their members have joined us to talk about Somerton Man. Let's let them introduce themselves. I'm Lindsay Sands. I've been married for about 11 years, and I have two children, two young boys, and I'm also a senior high school teacher. I love all things sci-fi, and I love playing board games. My name's Caroline Knight. I have also been married for about 11 years. I have two young boys. I love all things science, and I also illustrate and write my own children's picture books. So we look forward to having some commentary from them as we go through the mystery. So, Jimmy, let's start at the beginning. Who is the Somerton Man? Well, that's the big mystery. We don't know for sure who he was, which is why he's just called Somerton Man, because he died on a beach in Somerton, Australia. The authorities discovered a bunch of mysterious clues pointing to who he was and why he died. People who seemed to know him, though, wouldn't talk, suggesting something really dark may have happened. But the trail went cold. Fortunately, as we'll hear later in this episode, we may be on the verge of finally confirming who he was. So we probably should, for those who aren't familiar with Australia, where is Somerton? Technically, it's called Somerton Park, and it's a suburb of the city of Adelaide in the state South Australia. The population of Somerton Park was about 5,500 people in 2016. I don't know what it was in 1948, but it may have been considerably smaller. Somerton Park is a beach community, and it was on the beach that Somerton Man passed away. So I'm, I'm always uh, surprised. Sometimes, well, sometimes I'm surprised and sometimes I'm just interested when you have a personal connection to the topic we're covering. Jimmy, do you have a personal connection to South Australia? Sort of. People know I do a variety of different forms of dance, and one of them is a form of British folk dance known as Morris dancing. And one of the dances that my team does is actually called South Australia. This is what's known as a stick dance, which means we use uh, sticks, which are actually sledgehammer handles that we dance with and clash together and so forth. And at the beginning of South Australia, it has what's called a sing around. And what we do is we take our sledgehammer handles or sticks 
and mime as if we're turning a capstan on a ship, like raising or lowering the anchor. And we sing a sea shanty. This is an actual sea shanty. And it goes, in South Australia, I was born. Heave away, haul away, South Australia, round Cape Horn. And we're bound for South Australia. And then we clash our sticks and we start the dance. So anytime I hear South Australia mentioned, I think of that dance. I know that sea shanty I, I, yeah. from, from a different sea shanty, actually, that also mentions Cape Horn in South Australia. That's awesome. <laughs> so and then we also have another uh, connection to South Australia, right? With the Catholics of Oz. Yeah, they're in the state of Victoria, which is not the same as the state of South Australia, but they're both in the southern part of Australia. So they're they're quite close to each other. Right. They're in Melbourne uh, specifically. Yeah. So, Jimmy, let's get back to the, the, the mystery. Why is this case so mysterious? There are several reasons, but here's an early summary of the mystery from a 1949 edition of the Australian newspaper, The Advertiser. Every fresh disclosure about the man found dead on the Somerton Beach on December 1st seems to make his identity and mode of life, to say nothing of the cause of his death, more of a puzzle than ever. Indeed, the case supplies all the elements of one of Australia's most profound mysteries. Not only did the dead man conceal his identity with extraordinary sk extraordinary skill, sorry, but intentionally or not, set a riddle as to the manner of his death which neither police nor medical authorities yet seem able to solve. If the cause of death was a poison so rare and obscure that it cannot be traced by normal methods, a more than average knowledge of toxic substances is suggested. To former signs of the mystery man's learning is now added the revelation that on a note found in his clothes were printed the words, To Mom Should, which, indicating the finish, are to be found at the end of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Needless to say, there's been tons of speculation, and the Australian police launched an international investigation into who Somerton Man was and why he may have died. We asked the Catholics of Oz why Australians are still fascinated by this case, and here's what they had to say. There's an element of mystery to this case. When you come up with a theory, there are always doubts cast in that theory by other evidence. This is also interesting to Australians because it's studied, for example, in South Australia by law students. Our national broadcaster has talked about it a couple of times in different um, shows that they have as well. And Australians want to have closure. We love a mystery, but we also like to have the answers to it as well. So this mystery isn't going anywhere until we get some closure. There are so many aspects that bring mystery to the case, such as the possibility of espionage and spies being involved. The identity of this man, why can we not find who he is? Cold cases, usually we know who the person is and we try to find out how they died. But this case, we just can't, we just don't know who he is for about 70 years or so. There's the links to the Rubaiyat, the Persian poetry book. And also it's a bit of an Australian family mystery. I think people can kind of relate to it through Rachel Egan, who we're thinking that possibly she could be the granddaughter of the Somerton man. So we're just waiting to find out. Now, remember the names that Caroline of the Catholics of Oz mentioned, the Rubaiyat, the Persian Book of Poetry, and Rachel Egan, who will be coming up again in this episode. Great. So so let's back up and, and set the stage. How did the story of Somerton Man begin? It begins on November 30th, 1948. This was just three years after World War II ended, and it was the beginning of the Cold War. 
Winston Churchill had given his famous Iron Curtain speech in 1946 when he said that an Iron Curtain had descended over the Soviet bloc and tensions between the nations were high. The Russians were working on the bomb and they were getting near having it. Uh, Their first successful nuclear test would come just nine months later. Spies were everywhere, including Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were helping the Soviets steal American nuclear secrets, and the Cambridge Five, including Kim Philby, were helping the Soviets spy on the UK. On November 30th, 1948, it was a Tuesday. It was the last day of spring, and summer was about to begin in Australia. It was a warm night, and there were already mosquitoes swarming at Somerton Beach. Around 7 p.m., Mr. John Baines Lyons and his wife went for a walk along the beach. As they walked, they saw a man sitting on the beach, leaning with his back against the seawall near some stairs leading up to a home for crippled children that sat just above the beach. They saw the man raise his right arm and then let it drop limply. They thought he might be drunk, but he was definitely still alive at this point. Around 7.30 p.m., so 30 minutes later, a woman named Olive Constance Neal was walking with a man named Gordon, and they also saw the man. He was dressed in a fancy suit, and Olive noticed that his brown leather shoes were polished to a mirror shine, making them highly unusual beachwear. These these weren't flip-flops. As the Australian Broadcasting Corporation notes in a recent article, The quality of his clothes, the highly polished new shoes, the neatness of his grooming indicated he was not the kind of man who would be sleeping outside. The man wasn't moving, and Olive and her companion thought it odd that he wasn't swatting at the mosquitoes that were all over the beach. Olive thought he might be dead, but they didn't investigate. The next morning, around 6.30 a.m., the man was still there, and he was dead. The police were notified, and they came to investigate. What did the police find? As Carrie Greenwood explains in her book, Tamam Should, the Somerton Man Mystery, Brighton police station sent their constable Moss, who found a body in which rigor was already fully established. The man was lying with his feet toward the sea, still against the seawall. He was well-dressed, but he had no hat. He didn't appear to have suffered any stab wounds or bullet wounds. No bruises or blood were observed, and there was no disturbance of the scene. He seemed to have died very quietly and peacefully where he sat. His half-smoked cigarette had fallen out of his mouth and onto his lapel as he slumped, but his chin was not even blistered. The doctor who declared him dead suggested that he must have had a heart attack and sent him to the morgue for a post-mortem. The body was processed in the usual way, being stripped and tagged and refrigerated. There was nothing odd about a heart attack victim, so no special notice was taken of the half-smoked cigarette, but the contents of his pockets were logged as follows. Railway ticket to Henley Beach. Bus ticket to North Glenelg. American metal comb, packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, packet of army club cigarettes with seven canistas cigarettes inside, handkerchief, packet of Bryant and May matches. He had no wallet, no identity documents, no money, and no passport. The fact that his cigarette was only half smoked suggests he lost consciousness very quickly. I, it's my understanding from what cigarette smokers have told me that a cigarette burns for maybe five minutes. And so if his cigarette was half burned, that would suggest he lost consciousness within a five minute period. Somerton man's clothes were particularly interesting. One of the things that he had in his pocket 
one of the interesting things is that a pocket in his pants had been torn and then repaired by sewing it up with a British brand of orange waxed thread that wasn't available in Australia. This was odd because a seamstress would normally use a seamstress normally wouldn't use waxed thread to repair your pants. So it's it's likely this was a rush job that Somerton Man himself did with whatever he had available. And the orange waxed thread will be important later. Also, Somerton Man was a really snappy dresser. Uh, Greenwood, who is a native of Australia, explains, My father was convinced that Somerton Man was an American because of his clothes, which he called sharp. My dad was pretty sharp himself, and he had a keen eye for tailoring. Summerton Man was wearing jockey shorts and a singlet, a white shirt with a narrow tie in red, white, and blue, fawn trousers, a brown knitted pullover, a brown double-breasted suit coat, socks and highly polished brown laced shoes, snazzy. Summerton Man was a snappy dresser, but it was a hot evening, and he was wearing very heavy clothes for the weather. My own experience of Adelaide on a hot day is you'll find yourself wishing you could strip off your clothes at midday and bathe in the sea. Summerton Man was wearing the ensemble of someone who had come from somewhere cold, or who had nowhere to leave a change of clothes, or no lighter clothes into which he could change. Particularly interesting was the fact that Summerton Man didn't have any labels on his clothes. They had all been cut out. This seems, you know, strange to us today, but Summerton Man should have had labels bearing his name. Greenwood explains, Before the 70s, when cheap mass-produced fabrics flooded into the West, Clothes used to be much more valuable by a factor of about 10, and consequently, one labeled one's clothes. In the days before iron-on glue, the labels bearing the name of the garment's owner were usually sewn onto the manufacturer's label. When you bought the garment in an op shop, that is, an opportunity shop or thrift shop, you unpicked the original name tag and replaced it with your own. No used clothes shop hoping for a profit would ever remove a prestigious tailor's label from an expensive coat, because the label would double the price. The only reason I can think of for removing all the labels is the concealment of Summerton Man's identity. So it's a real element of mystery. Someone, either some, Summerton Man or someone else, went to significant lengths to conceal his identity. But that wasn't the only mystery they found in his personal effects. They also found a little wad of paper in the pocket for his watch that had the words Tamam Should professionally printed on it, like it had been cut out of a book. What does Tamam Should mean? It's Persian for ended or finished or just the end. And the authorities would later learn more about this mysterious scrap of paper, which has given its name to the case. Many people refer to what happened many people refer to what happened to Summerton Man as the Tamam Should case. So what did the medical examiner determine based on his inspection of the body? The pathologist John Cleland determined that Summerton Man was five foot eleven inches tall. He was approximately forty to forty-five years old. His hair was blonde or ginger colored with some graying at the temples. He was in quote top physical condition, close quote. His hands did not show signs of manual labor. His big and little toes were wedged as if he were accustomed to wearing boots. His legs were tanned in a way that suggested he often wore shorts. And he was Caucasian, and Cleland thought that he looked like a, quote, Britisher, close quote. According to the opt autopsy report, his last meal was a pasty. That's a kind of British food, kind of like a modern hot pocket or calzone. 
or calzone, but they're usually filled with steak and vegetables uh, rather than pizza stuff. And he'd eaten it about three or four hours before his death. In terms of the state of his internal organs, the pathologist found, The heart was of normal size and normal in every way. Small vessels not commonly observed in the brain were easily discernible with congestion. There was congestion of the pharynx, and the gullet was covered with whitening of superficial layers of the mucosa with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. The stomach was deeply congested. There was congestion in the second half of the duodenum. There was blood mixed with the food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested, and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, about three times normal size. There was destruction of the center of the liver lobules revealed under the microscope. Acute gastritis hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver and spleen, and the congestion to the brain. So he didn't die of a heart attack, which is, you know, what most people think of when they think of just a sudden natural death. In view of the circumstances, the doctors thought he was likely poisoned, and they sent specimens from his body for testing, but they weren't able to identify a poison. They took a cast, a plaster cast of the body, which they then had embalmed and buried while continuing their investigation. So then what was the next development in the case? Six weeks later, on January 14th, 1949, workers at the Adelaide Railway Station found a suitcase that had been checked into the cloakroom there at 11 a.m. on November 30th, Somerton Man's last day alive. Interestingly, the suitcase had its label removed, just like all the labels on Somerton Man's clothing, which had been removed. And they made the connection to Somerton Man. Greenwood writes, It was a nice, clean, respectable, and not inexpensive brown leather suitcase. All the labels had been removed. In those days, labels were not tied on as they are in airplane travel today. They were glued or pasted onto the leather. Having tried to remove some of the labels from my grandmother's favorite suitcase because they were so pretty, I can tell you from first-hand experience that they cannot be stripped or cut off. They can only be removed by patient, gentle soaking with a sponge, which argues time and determination. Somerton Man really didn't want anyone to know where he had been. The suitcase contained the following items. Red-checked dressing gown, red felt slippers, size 7, undergarments, 4 pairs, pajamas, 4 pairs of socks, shaving kit containing razor and strop, shaving brush, light brown trousers with sand in cuffs, a screwdriver, a cut-down table knife, a stenciling brush, a pair of scissors, a sewing kit containing orange barber's waxed thread, two ties, three pencils, six handkerchiefs, six pence in coins, a button, a tin of brown shoe polish, kiwi brand, one scarf, one cigarette lighter, eight large envelopes and one small envelope, one piece of light cord, one scarf, one shirt without a name tag, one yellow coat shirt, a shirt with an attached collar, two airmail stickers, one rubber eraser, one front and one back collar stud, toothbrush, and paste. And this was definitely Summerton Man's suitcase as it had the same British orange waxed thread that had been used to repair his pants. The contents of the suitcase also reveal something about the type of trip he was on. He was obviously away from home, or he wouldn't have checked the suitcase at the railway station. Uh, also, people locally would have known who he was. He wasn't planning a long trip, maybe a few days or a week, as judged by the fact that he had four pairs of underwear and socks 
and three shirts, counting the one he was wearing when he died. That's not what you pack for a long trip. They also found marks on the clothes that dry cleaners and laundries use to identify customers' clothing, but they couldn't find dry cleaners or laundries that used the specific sequences of numbers that they found, so his clothes must have been cleaned elsewhere. Were there any names on any of the clothing in the suitcase? Yes, uh, Greenwood writes, Some of the garments in the suitcase actually had labels with a name on them. There must have been cautious rejoicing amongst the exasperated police at that point, although they should have known it was too good to be true. The name, written on an undershirt, a laundry bag, and a tie, was T. Keen, with an E, or possibly T. Keen without an E. The call went out, and a local sailor named Tom Reed was said to be missing. Was Somerton Man perhaps Tom Reed? But when Tom Reed's shipmates viewed the body, they all said that it was not their Tom Reed. Meanwhile, my widespread searches through maritime agencies had revealed that no one was missing a T. Keen with an E or without an E. Notably, the only marked clothes in the suitcase, which also had a name on them, were those where the name could not be removed without destroying the garment. For instance, the undershirt, where the name was written inside the band in indelible ink. And it also seems reasonable to assume that Somerton Man left the names where they were because he knew that he was not Tom or any other Keen. Besides, it's unusual to buy second-hand underwear. Even if you are very poor, you usually save to buy new knickers. I speak from personal experience. So why did Somerton Man have T. Keen's laundry bag? It's another mystery. And it amplifies the mystery of the missing labels because, I mean, I can't imagine writing my name in indelible ink in my underwear. You know, right. it's just it's a different world in terms of the value of clothing. So weird. Somerton Man apparently had another guy's laundry bag in his suitcase. Did the fact that the suitcase was found in a railway station let them reconstruct any of the events of Somerton Man's last day? Yeah, based on the suitcase and the train and bus tickets they found in his pocket. In 1949, the advertiser wrote, The only articles found on the dead man were a punched single train ticket to Henley, which had not been used, and a bus ticket to Somerton. The train ticket had been issued between 6 a.m. and noon on November 30th, and the bus ticket for a bus leaving Adelaide at about 11.15 a.m. the same day. Because he had not yet been identified, Police believe that the dead man probably arrived in Adelaide only on the morning of November 30th, and after shaving at the railway station, he was clean-shaven when found, deposited his luggage in the cloakroom. He is then thought to have bought a ticket to travel to Henley, missed his train, and then walked across the bus terminus opposite the station and caught a bus to Somerton. So it appears that he ended up on Somerton Beach by accident. He was originally planning on going to Henley, which is a suburb of Sydney in New South Wales. That's 1,300 miles away. But he missed his train and spent the day in Adelaide. Let's go back to that piece of paper in Somerton Man's watch pocket that had Tamam Should written on it. What were the authorities able to find out about that? It had been torn out of a book, and it was blank on the reverse side. Uh, they discovered that the phrase meant ended or finished or the end in Persian, and they identified the book that it's from, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Who's Omar Khayyam? Omar Khayyam was an astronomer and mathematician in Persia, that's modern Iran, in the 11th and 12th centuries. Uh, despite his fame as an astronomer, a bunch of poetry has been attributed to him. In 1859, the English poet Edward Fitzgerald translated some of that poetry into English. 
Uh, the poems were written in four-line quatrains, so he called the collection he translated the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, Rubaiyat being the Persian word for quatrain or a four-line stanza. So it's the quatrains of Omar Khayyam. The book made a big sensation, and it was very popular in the English-speaking world for a long time. Greenwood says it, quote, used to be a popular Christmas gift for relatives one did not know well, close quote. As an aside, uh, I often saw in uh, retreat houses in the 80s, uh, th- this book in the library is there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That and Khalil Gibran. Yes, the prophet. <laughs> so uh, will will listeners recognize any quotations from the Rubaiyat? Probably. One famous line from the collection is the moving finger writes and having writ moves on. And I remember when I was back in the 70s when I was in school and they'd show us little, you know, films of an educational nature uh, they had one I remember on like literature and writing and the woman who was writing or the woman who was presenting in that video was just so impressed by this line and how beautiful it is. The moving finger writes and having writ moves on. And even at the time, I didn't get it and I still don't. <laughs> so I'm not sure why that's so memorable to her. Um, But apparently it's memorable to a lot of other people as well. A more famous line that I that I do get is a line describing the romantic ideal as involving a loaf of bread, a jug of wine and thou. That's also from the Rubaiyat. So wait, a jug of wine. Wasn't Omar Khayyam a Muslim? Uh, So it seems. But if he really wrote this poetry, he wasn't a very good Muslim. He has lots of positive things to say in the Rubaiyat about drinking alcohol, even though Muslims aren't supposed to drink alcohol in this life. Uh, Despite that, and not a lot of people know this, there's actually a substantial body of wine poetry in Muslim history. People also debate whether Khayyam was a Sufi, a Muslim mystic, or even a skeptic who was outwardly pretending to be a Muslim because, you know, reasons. Right. In any event, the overall theme of Fitzgerald's collection of Khayyam's poems is that you ought to live life to the fullest and not regret it when you die. He then ended the collection with the phrase Tamam Shud at the bottom of the last page, just meaning the end. And that's what Somerton Mann had torn out of a copy of the Rubaiyat and kept in his watch pocket. Were they able to find out anything more about this connection between Somerton Mann and the Rubaiyat? Yeah, and this is where the story gets even more mysterious. Uh, The authorities actually found the physical copy of the Rubaiyat that Somerton Mann had torn the phrase out of. Details about how they found it are sketchy. Some accounts say it was actually found a couple of weeks before he died. Others say it was found shortly after his death. Most accounts agree that it was found in a car in the Adelaide area, just a random unlocked parked car. It was found either on the back floor well or on the back seat. Apparently, it had just been thrown in the back of the car while it was parked, perhaps by Somerton Man himself. It was also a first edition of the book from 1859, not one of the many, many later editions that followed. So as a first edition, it was valuable. Despite that, either Somerton Mann or someone else had not only torn out the Tamam Shud phrase, they also wrote two phone numbers in the back of the book. So did the police follow up on those phone numbers? 
Yeah, one of them was reportedly to a bank, but if so, it doesn't seem that this led to a promising lead because I can't find further mention of it. The other number, though, was something that led to a promising lead. It was an unlisted phone number, so Summerton Mann could not have gotten it just by looking in a phone book. It was an unlisted phone number that belonged to a woman who either then or at a later time worked as a nurse. She asked the police to withhold her name, and they did. Consequently, she's been referred to by a variety of pseudonyms in different sources, which has hampered amateur investigators of the case. However, years later, her real name was revealed to be Jessica Ellen or Joe Thompson, which is the name we'll be using here. According to Greenwood, She lived in Mosley Street, Glenelg, just above Somerton Beach. And here the story gets very interesting. The police questioned Jessica, who said she was not at home on 30 November, but her neighbor mentioned that a strange man had called at the house. When Teresa was shown the body cast of Somerton Man, the police officer who exhibited it said she was completely taken aback, to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. An odd reaction, perhaps. Nurses are regrettably used to death, and Somerton's man's face had been extensively plastered across the newspapers. Teresa must have already known that he was dead, if she knew him at all, that is. When asked about the phone number in the Rubaiyat, she volunteered that she had once owned a copy while she was working at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, but in 1945, she had given it to Alfred Boxall, who was a soldier. This, as the alert reader and listener will have noticed, is not an answer to the question. But she also said that the body cast was not of anyone she knew. The police decided to find Alf Boxall, hoping, I expect, that this mystery would finally be marked closed. But Boxall was not Somerton Man. He was alive and well, living in Randwick, and working in bus maintenance. Boxall was unable to identify Somerton Man, and what's more, he produced his copy of the Rubaiyat, complete with its last words, to Mom Should. Can I ask you a quick question, Jimmy, there? Yeah. Her name is Jessica, but several times in that quote from the book, it refers to a Teresa. Is that just a... That's a that's one of the pseudonyms okay. that's used for her. Just clarify there. Okay, excellent. Sorry, continue. So Jessica lived very close to where Somerton Man was found. Someone saw a strange man call at her house on the day Somerton Man died. Jessica was taken aback when she saw Somerton Man's body cast and appeared about to faint. Also, and Greenwood doesn't mention this, the technician who made the body cast said that Jessica turned away from it and refused to look at it again. Jessica tried to explain why her phone number was in Somerton Man's copy of the Rubaiyat by saying she'd once given a copy to a man named Alf Boxall, but the copy she gave Boxall was not the same one that Somerton Man owned, suggesting that her co- that her number got in his copy some other way. All of this suggests that despite the fact that Jessica denied knowing him, she really did. She was keeping some kind of secret, and Somerton Man may have visited or tried to visit her the day he died. In later years, she was interviewed by an author and former detective who found her evasive. She died in 2007, but in 2014, her daughter said that she believed her mother knew Somerton Man. Was there anything else written in Somerton Man's copy of the Rubaiyat? The police also found a secret code. The code is five lines long and consists of a nonsensical combination of consonants and vowels. Because of that, we won't be reading it here on the show. You know, it wouldn't make good listening. (laughs) But 
there is a picture of it on the Wikipedia page we'll link in further resources. One of the lines has been struck out, and various factors suggest that the reason is that this line was miscoded. This suggests that the code was meant to be four lines long. Thus far, nobody's been able to successfully crack the code. The fact it was found in a first edition of the Rubaiyat could suggest that someone was using this edition as a one-time pad to create the code. For more information on one-time pads, we'll have a link in the further resources. And also, you can listen to episode 67 on Numbers Stations, where we talk about how one-time pads work. In her book, Greenwood suggested that the problem solving the code may be because people haven't tried cracking it using a first edition of the Rubaiyat, and she suggests checking certain major libraries to find one. I went to archive.org and found one, uh, and we'll have a link in further resources so you can try cracking the code for yourself if you like. Howdy, folks. This is Jimmy Aiken with a special message. The StarQuest Network is fulfilling its mission to explore the intersection of faith and pop culture. And in the past year, we've reached stunning new heights. Our programs are reaching broad new audiences with a message that helps us discern good entertainment, make sense of the world, and share the gospel with others. The support of our audience is vital for this work and has helped us grow closer to meeting our financial obligations. For that, we're very grateful. But we still need to close the gap. Every new gift extends our deadline. But until we eliminate our deficits, the future of StarQuest and your favorite shows remain in question. That's why it's crucial that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we're very grateful. And we ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, Please become one now. We urgently need your help, and every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 a month? That lets us provide more than 40 hours of professionally produced shows with compelling content. We have special thank you gifts for donors at several giving levels. If you're a business owner or just want to provide a leadership level of support, we now have a special giving level for sponsors, like in public broadcasting. For $500 a month, you or your business can sponsor one of the shows on our network, including Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Listeners will hear a message in every episode thanking you for your sponsorship and giving your website. We'll also have your name and website on the SQPN webpage and in the show notes of every episode during your sponsorship. Whatever level of support you can offer, whether large or small, please show your support for StarQuest this Christmas, and remember that your gifts are tax-deductible. Just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. And may God bless you and yours as we approach the celebration of our Lord's birth. So we've got a lot of mysterious stuff all laid out here on the table. What theories are there about the Somerton Man case? They fall into several categories. Where was Somerton Man from? What was his job? How did he die? Who was responsible? And specifically, who was he? All right, let's start at the top. What are the theories about where was Somerton Man from? Since he was found in Australia, Australia is a possibility. Also, based on his possessions, the United States or the United Kingdom. And what are the theories about his job? One of the theories is that he was a seaman. And we'll go into the evidence for that. But he may have been more than a seaman. He may have also been a criminal. 
and he may have even been a specific type of criminal, a spy. And then what are the theories about how Summerton Man died? It could have been natural causes, or since he didn't have any wounds on him, it could have been poison. And the theories about who was responsible for his death? Well, assuming it was poison, it could have been someone else, either other criminals or spies, or it could have been himself. He could have committed suicide. And finally, are there theories about who specifically Summerton Man was? Yeah, but we'll consider those after we cover the others. And there's a twist coming up. Ooh. All right. So what can we say about Summerton Man from the faith perspective? Not much. Just don't, you know, poison people, commit crimes or spy on people you shouldn't. <laughs> I would love to have a discussion sometime about the uh, morality of spying, whether a, yep. a Christian could be a spy. Oh, we have an episode on espionage on the big list. Yes. Awesome. That's awesome. So uh, let's then move on to the reason perspective. What can we say about Summerton Man from the reason perspective? Wh what about his nationality? Since he was found in Australia, it would be the natural starting point to suppose well, he's from Australia. But his personal effects contain things that weren't available for purchase there at the time. He had an American metal comb, and the stitching on his coat indicated that the coat was from America. He also had British cigarettes. Uh, both the Army Club pack and the Canistas inside it were British cigarettes. The orange waxed thread he had was British. And you know, the pathologist thought he looked like a Britisher, though that's not particularly helpful since, you know, British Empire, colonies, America, Canada, Australia, etc. Because his possessions were from a mix of places, it suggests that he was a traveler and that he had traveled extensively. Because he'd apparently been to America and the UK, Australian authorities contacted the FBI and Scotland Yard and sent them Somerton Man's fingerprints, but they couldn't find matches for them, meaning, I guess, that he wasn't a federal criminal in either place. Now, even today, we don't have complete fingerprint databases for the whole population. Back then, the federal authorities would have had maybe like a federal collection. It wouldn't have even been a database yet, but right. a federal collection of federal criminals. But apparently, the Australians, the Americans, and the Brits couldn't find any record of this guy. All right. So what are the theories about his job? The fact that he was an international traveler who showed up in a beach city led some to propose that he was a sailor. If so, he was not a deckhand because his hands were too soft to have done extensive manual labor. But he could have been a higher ranking sailor. Uh, Greenwood notes that his personal effects are consistent with that theory. The stenciling brush, the modified knife, the screwdriver, pencils and the scissors found in Summerton Man's suitcase were all part of a cargo master's equipment. The stenciling brush for marking cargo and the other items for cutting or replacing seals. She also notes that some of the marks on his body were consistent with this theory. There were three small scars inside his left wrist, a curved one-inch scar inside his left elbow, and a round mark, possibly from a boil, on his upper left forearm. Those scars on his left wrist confirm my belief that he was a seaman. I've seen them before. Someone who wears an oil skin standing in salt sea spray gets the sleeve of his non-dominant hand wet, and the sleeve then scrapes across his inside wrist where the skin is thinner. Salt is a powerful abrasive. It produces scrapes, then sores, and then scars. A cargo master on a ship giving orders about stowage and heavy weather might easily have such scars. 
Somerton man was probably right-handed because it is his left wrist that has what the fishermen call gurry sores. So he may have been a seaman and specifically a cargo master, but that may have just been his day job. In view of all the mystery surrounding him, he may have been something else. If he was killed, and that's still an if, it could be because he was part of the criminal underworld, in which case he may have been a criminal. But most criminals aren't that smart and don't use codes or one-time pads. Also, the labels in his clothes and most of his suitcase had been cut out. And that's something he didn't do in Somerton. Uh, He was only there for a day, and he would have had to take a good bit of time, as well as strip naked, to cut out all those labels while he was there. It would have been very inconvenient and unlikely he would do that during his day stay in his accidental day stay in Somerton. That suggests that he had already cut them out before he ever arrived in the Adelaide area, which meant he was traveling incognito so that if anybody grabbed him and looked at his clothes, they wouldn't have been able to determine his identity from them. That suggests he may have been a special kind of criminal, a spy, spies being people who break the laws of one country in the service of another country. There have always been spies ever since the days of Joshua and Caleb in the Bible, and they weren't the first. In 1948, when the Cold War was ramping up, so was spy activity, including the numbers stations we talked about in episode 67. That's when they were starting to really become widespread. And there were sites near Somerton that could have been of interest to a spy. Wikipedia notes, At least two sites relatively close to Adelaide were of interest to spies the Radium Hill Uranium Mine, and the Woomera Test Range, an Anglo-Australian military research facility. The man's death coincided with a reorganization of Australian security agencies, which would culminate the following year with the founding of the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. This would be followed by a crackdown on Soviet Soviet espionage in Australia, which was revealed by intercepts of Soviet communications under the Venona Project. So, Somerton Mann could have been a spy for the Soviets, or perhaps a counter-espionage agent working against them, who then ran afoul of Soviet agents. So, what's the evidence about how Somerton Mann died? The medical professionals who've looked at the case have had different opinions. John Matthew Dwyer, one of the early pathologists who examined him just after his death, said, I am quite convinced the death could not have been natural. The poison I suggested was a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic. John Burton Cleland, another of the early pathologists, stated, I would be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glucoside, and that it was not accidentally administered. However, not everyone has been convinced. Uh, For her book, Carrie Greenwood asked a pathologist named Shelley Robertson to review what was known medically, and here's what she had to say. I find the pathologist's eagerness to exclude natural causes as the cause of death Somewhat disconcerting. From the snippets of the pathology report I have seen, there is significant pathology present, that is, enlarged spleen, three times the normal size. If it is really this big, it suggests that the deceased may have had an underlying hematological condition or some strange infectious disease. Many cardiac conditions are currently recognized as causing sudden death by producing a rapidly fatal cardiac arrhythmia, for example, QT syndrome. These were probably not recognized in the 1940s. I agree that the circumstances surrounding this man's death makes natural causes unlikely, 
but I haven't seen anything in the pathology comments to exclude natural causes so vehemently. In summary, I don't believe death due to natural causes can be ruled out in this case, and the notion that he died by poisoning is problematic to substantiate in the absence of any discernible poison, even given that testing in those times was fairly primitive compared to current technology available. So Dr. Robertson thinks that, quote, the circumstances surrounding this man's death make natural causes unlikely, close quote, but she thinks they shouldn't simply be ruled out. If he was poisoned, who would have done it? Well, if he was a criminal or a spy, presumably other criminals or spies. However, he could have poisoned himself. It could have been suicide. One can imagine a depressed, suicidal man just wanting to vanish from the world. You might think that uh, that would include cutting out all the labels from his clothes and suitcase. But as we mentioned, that would be a time-consuming process that a person who commits suicide suddenly wouldn't do. And Somerton Man wasn't planning on committing suicide, at least not that day, since he had bought a train ticket and only went to Somerton because he had missed that train and needed to spend the day in Adelaide. Originally, he was going to go 1,300 miles away. Putting the Persian phrase for the end from a book of poetry in his pocket could be seen as consistent with suicidal ideation. Also, seeking to have a last meeting with a nurse he'd had a fling with could be something that fits the pattern of a depressed guy on his way to kill himself. And then he could go down to the beach and end it all. So suicide is quite possible. But so is faking a suicide in order to get rid of a spy who's been working against you. And there's the niggling little matter of the secret code. In all the years since Summerton Man died, have any theories emerged about who specifically he was? Tons of them. By 1953, just five years after his death, the Adelaide police had received 251 possible identifications of Summerton Man, but none of them panned out. But uh, let's talk about a current, very popular theory about who he was. Some years ago, an Australian professor named Derek Abbott started looking into the case. He focused on Jessica, or Joe Thompson, the nurse that authorities thought knew Somerton Man, even though she denied it. And according to a story by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Although Joe would go on to marry car dealer George Thompson once his divorce was finalized, she had a son who was about 16 months old when the Somerton Man died 400 meters from her house. Towards the end of her life, she told a friend, she would always be grateful to George for marrying her when she was pregnant with her first child, even though he wasn't the father. Through his research, Professor Abbott concluded that Somerton Man and Joe Thompson were known to each other. He believes they had a child called Robin. Quote, Perhaps he did come to see Joe Thompson and his son and died for whatever reason there out on the beach. And perhaps it was in her interest to de-identify him, he says. She was in a relationship with another man who would go on to be her husband, and she just didn't want this ghost from the past coming back to mess up her current existence. End quote. In 2009, Professor Abbott consulted with dental experts who concluded the Somerton man had the rare genetic disorder of hypodontia, affecting his lateral incisor teeth, present in only 2% of the population. University of Adelaide professor of anatomy, Masij Henneberg, examined images of the Somerton man's ears and found his Simba, the upper ear hollow, was larger than the lower, a feature possessed by only 1-2% to of the population. A photo of Robin showed he shared both these anomalies. The chance of coincidence is estimated at between 1 in 10,000 
and one in 20,000. Actually, those odds are wrong. People often make statistical errors, and so I ran the numbers, and given that Somerton Man had these two physiological quirks, there would be between a 1 in 2,500 and 1 in 5,000 chance that Robin Thompson would have had them by chance. Still, that's a really low chance. Given the proximity between Jessica or Joe Thompson and Somerton Man, I mean, he died 1,500 feet away from her home, and the low chance that her son would have the same rare tooth and ear anomalies that Somerton Man had, there is a good chance that he was her baby daddy. When was Robin Thompson born? Well, he was 16 months old at the time Somerton Man apparently tried to visit Joe Thompson, so he would have been born around August 1947. He thus would have been conceived around November 1946. So if he was Somerton Man's son, Joe and Somerton Man would have had to have met or, you know, been known each other and been together uh, around November of 1946. Okay, this is probably an obvious question. Can't we just find Robin Thompson and test his DNA? Uh, unfortunately, he died in 2009. Uh, but Abbott discovered that Robin had married a woman named Roma, and they had a daughter named Rachel Egan. There's that name that Caroline from the Catholics of Oz mentioned, who would be Somerton Mann's granddaughter on this theory. And Professor Abbott found her and married her, and today they have three children. Well, that's really getting into your mystery, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so do Rachel and her mother, Roma, think that Somerton Man may have been Rachel's grandfather? Yeah. In uh, 2013, Rachel spoke with the Australian version of the TV news magazine 60 Minutes and had this to say. Somerton Man is potentially my grandfather. The question now, were Jessica and Somerton Man also lovers? Rachel Egan and her mother, Roma, say yes. Roma believes her late husband was the love child of Jessica and Somerton Man, making Rachel the mystery man's granddaughter. I'd rather find out the truth and, and deal with it and move on and, and have closure. So have they been using Rachel's DNA to investigate the matter? Yes. Uh, remember how in episode 38 on how we caught the Golden State Killer, we talked about using DNA databases to identify people based on their relatives' DNA? Professor Abbott has already used Rachel Egan's DNA to trace her family line, and she's got lots of fourth cousins in the United States. So if she's Somerton Man's granddaughter, then he may have been an American. In fact, Rachel's father's DNA has been traced to the east coast of the United States and linked both to Native American stocks and relatives of Thomas Jefferson. Hmm. We would still need DNA from Somerton Man himself to confirm that, though. Is there any progress on that front? In 2017, Professor Abbott announced that they have three excellent hairs that were taken from the plaster cast of Somerton Man, and they may be able to find usable DNA from those. Also, just two months ago, in October 2019, the South Australian Attorney General Vicky Chapman approved plans to exhume Somerton Man's body to obtain his DNA. But Abbott still has to raise 20000 Australian dollars. That's about 14,000 US dollars in order to cover the costs. If I were him, I'd start a GoFundMe. I think he'd get the money in no time. Mm. So we may soon have conclusive evidence about whether Somerton Man was Rachel Egan's grandfather. Even if not, we'll have his DNA, and that could be used to trace his family of origin through DNA databases. 
we could then look at those family trees and identify people for, born in the right time frame who later went missing. This would be essentially the same thing we did to find the Golden State Killer. We asked the Catholics of Oz what they thought about the new article, and here's what they had to say. I think it's just interesting that this article was written at all. It was from November this year, and it shows that there is a big interest in this case still in Australia. This seems to be a cold case that people have an unusual amount of interest in, and the article conveys that very well. This familial connection is very interesting. He has been petitioning the Attorney General, Vicky Chapman, to have the body exhumed. And finally, she has given permission to have the body exhumed. He really wants to get the DNA from the Somerton man and compare it with his now wife's DNA to find out if they are related. If they're related, then they will know that she is the Somerton man's granddaughter and his children are the great-grandchildren of the Somerton man. I just found that all of this information coming together like that is just really interesting and I cannot wait to see what the DNA results actually tell us. So we're very likely to solve the mystery of Somerton Man's identity before long. In fact, we already may know it. Uh, okay, who might he have been? Well, as we said, there have literally been hundreds of proposals, but one of them stands out. According to Wikipedia... In 2011, an Adelaide woman contacted biological anthropologist Masij Henneberg about an identification card of an H.C. Reynolds that she had found in her father's possessions. The card, a document issued in the United States to foreign seamen during World War I, was given to Henneberg in October 2011 for comparison of the ID photograph to that of the Somerton man. While Henneberg found anatomical similarities in features such as the nose, lips, and eyes, he believed they were not as reliable as the close similarity of the ear. The ear shapes shared by both men were a very good match, although Henneberg also found what he called a unique identifier, a mole on the cheek that was the same shape and in the same position in both photographs. He said, together with the similarity of the ear characteristics, this mole in a forensic case would allow me to make a rare statement positively identifying the Somerton man. The ID card numbered 58757 was issued in the United States on 28 February 1918 to H.C. Reynolds, giving his nationality as British and age as 18. However, searches conducted by the U.S. National Archives, the U.K. National Archives, and the Australian War Memorial Research Center have failed to find any records relating to H.C. Reynolds. So neither the U.S. nor the U.K. nor the Australian authorities have been able to find a record showing that an H.C. Reynolds existed. That could mean that even if Somerton Mann owned this identity card, it was a false one perhaps to cover his identity as a spy. And it does also, since it was an ID for a seaman, it does tie in with the evidence that he was a seaman. And even if we did know his identity, that still wouldn't tell us what he was doing in Adelaide or why he died. Does the nurse's family have any thoughts on that? Yeah. In addition to her son, Robin, Jessica or Joe Thompson had other children, including a daughter named Kate. In 2013, Kate spoke with 60 Minutes, and she said that she's always thought her mother may have had a connection to or even been responsible for Somerton Man's death. She said to me she knew who he was, but she wasn't going to, to let that out of the bag, so to speak. You pretty much do accept 
but uh, she was a spy. I think so, yes. She had a dark side and a very strong dark side. So it's in this climate the young Jessica Thompson, nurse, communist sympathiser and single mum, was raising her son Robin in Somerton, South Australia. Were she alive today, would she have given me an interview? No. No. So you're as close as I get to this? Absolutely. And she'd probably be a bit miffed. Today, Kate remembers a mother who was loving but secretive. She certainly um, said once she was teaching English um, to newly arrived migrants. And at the time, there'd been a small group coming from Russia into Australia. And as she said to me, oh, surprised that I could still quite understand Russian. She so, dropped that bombshell. Yeah. So when did you learn Russian? Well, that's for me to know. <laughs> did she lie to the police? Yes, she did. She told the police that she didn't know who he was. And certainly I know nothing. And yet she told you that she, she did. did. And she told me that it was a mystery that was only known to a level higher than the police force. She means what, that some spook somewhere would be. Yeah, yeah, but she said it wasn't at a state police level. A lifetime of small suspicions finally led Kate to conclude that her mum, the spy, was certainly having an affair with Summerton Man, most likely himself a spy, and may well have had a hand in his death. There's always that fear that I've thought maybe she was responsible for his death. I don't, do I want to know that? That's a hard thing for you to carry with you, that you... There's a little bit, might yeah. Have bumped somebody off. Yeah. So, Mom was a secretive person and a communist sympathizer who spoke Russian but wouldn't say where she learned it. She admitted to her daughter that she knew Somerton Man but lied to the police about it. And she said that the truth of the matter was known by someone higher than the police, presumably an intelligence agency somewhere. Kate thinks that her mother and Somerton man may have been Soviet agents having an affair, though the children involved didn't know this at the time. Kind of like an Australian version of the TV show The Americans. Right. She also suspects that her mother may have had something to do with Somerton man's death. How would that have worked? Well, she could have bumped him off or she could have had him bumped off or she could have driven him to suicide, either for the usual emotional reasons or because she gave him a suicide order on behalf of a spy agency, or because she warned him of a danger, and suicide was the best way he saw out of that danger. So it could have worked a number of ways. Okay. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Somerton Man mystery? Let's let the Catholics of Oz give their bottom lines first. Uh, we asked them what they thought, and here's what they had to say. Here's my theory. Uh, the Summerton man is either possibly a migrant from the United States or he ended up in Australia because of his work in shipping, which apparently is what his ID card demonstrated that he did. If it is even his ID card, I have to stress that as well. He meets Joe Thompson and they have a romantic relationship for a while. And then she went cold on him and disappeared, which apparently is something that she has done all throughout her life. So Summerton man obviously wants to find her. He, he starts trying to track her down. And this is where the book the Rubaiyat comes in for me. The Rubaiyat apparently at that time was a gift that lovers gave each other. And as he was trying to find her, the so-called code is not a code at all, but it's his shorthand writing of details that he's used to try and find her, including a phone number that he's found for her in Adelaide. And he goes to her house to talk to her, maybe because he doesn't want the relationship to be over. It turns out that she has a child 
maybe he recognizes that this is his child and maybe she kicks him out and says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. He leaves distraught. He rips out the tamam should, which means it's over. And he pops it in his pocket because of this kind of poetic symbol of the end. And he throws the book in the back of a car and he walks down to Adelaide Beach. He consumes a substance, which I have no idea how he <laughs> how he procured it. And knowing that the end is coming, he lights a cigarette and he waits for the end to come. Now, just with the clothing, I just want to add as well. It was noticed that the shoes were unusually, you know, well polished. And that's probably because he was trying to look good when he um, saw her and made a good impression on her. It didn't go down very well at all after all the effort he put in. So he ended up at Summerton Beach and that's where he took his life. I kind of keep changing my mind <laughs> about my theory because there's so much information. Mine is very similar to Lindsay's. I think that Joe Thompson did know the Summerton man and they ended up having a bit of a whirlwind romance. She became pregnant with his child. For some reason, they split up. Then at some point, the Summerton man goes to find her. He still has the book. He has her number. He obviously knows where she lives. Somehow he found her. He goes to see her. He was hopeful maybe they could get back together. He opens the door. She says, hello. Maybe she says, go away. I don't want to know you anymore. He sees this little boy and he thinks, oh, he looks a bit like me. <laughs> but the news that she doesn't want to know him anymore is a bit too much. So he makes the decision that he wants to commit suicide. Now, with these spies, allegations and things, they could possibly have been spies earlier on together but this may have led to his knowledge about poisons and what may not leave a trace in your body he had a substance with him or during the day he acquired a substance somehow uh, ended up on the beach so he went down sat on the beach lit up a cigarette took some poison and just relaxed and waited for it all to happen all right so that's their bottom line jimmy what's your bottom line I like the romantic theories of Summerton Man's suicide that the Catholics of Oz propose, and it's possible that it was a suicide induced by a romance gone wrong. However, I'm not sure that he saw Robin when he visited Joe Thompson, or that he recognized him as his son, or that it was a surprise to him. If he, you know, he may have known he had a son. Also, I don't know that he actually saw Joe Thompson that day. She says he didn't. And that could be true. He showed up unannounced. She might not have been home. And a neighbor just saw him trying to call on her, but maybe he didn't actually see her. And, you know, remember, he wasn't originally planning on seeing Thompson. He only went to her house because he missed his train. He may have been planning a suicide before he ended up seeing Thompson. Uh, at the time, he cut the labels out of his clothing, perhaps to protect the spy ring he was part of. Then he went on a train trip to hide the location of where he'd been working. And when he missed one of his connections, he decided to visit a former colleague, perhaps to let her know he was going to die. He could have been depressed or struggling with his conscience as a spy or trying to avoid an even worse fate that he was fleeing. I'm more inclined, I think, than the Catholics of Oz to see the role of espionage in this. I think it's quite probable that Summerton Mann was an active spy, either a Soviet spy or perhaps an American or British agent doing counterintelligence against the Soviet spy efforts in Australia. And espionage may have had something to do with his death. He may well be the father of Robin Thompson and the grandfather of Rachel Egan and will likely know soon uh, based on DNA tests if they can exhume the body. 
Even if he's not, then we're still likely to be able to identify him through DNA family tree tracing, as long as we can get the body exhumed. That still won't tell us everything about Summerton Man, including precisely why he died, though if he was a spy, there may be records uh, somewhere that will one day come to light and tell us more. Excellent. And finally, we want to thank the Catholics of Oz for joining us on this episode of Mysterious World. Uh, Here's a little more about their podcast. We like to share ideas about faith and about culture and other things from an Australian perspective. We like to um, talk about things that are happening in the Australian church, but also comment on things in the worldwide church as well. And we look for positive stories about uh, people who are evangelizing. We also like to talk about our own personal stories. And on my side of things, um, I love to bring the science perspective to our podcast. Uh, Science is my passion. You know, science is really the exploration of God's creation. I get very excited about it and I love to share my excitement with everybody as well. So we warmly invite everyone who's listening today to add our Australian accents to their podcast playlist. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners about this mystery? In our further resources, we'll have links to the Catholics of Oz podcast. Also, Carrie Greenwood's book, Tamam Should, The Summerton Man Mystery, Wikipedia's entry on Summerton Man, a recent article on the DNA investigations. We'll also have a link to the 2014 60 Minutes segment, the Australian 60 Minutes segment with those family interviews. Uh, We'll have articles linked on how the DNA is connected to Thomas Jefferson and Native Americans commonly misreported facts on this case, one-time pads, the 1949 newspaper article. We'll have the original, both Wikipedia's article on the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam and the 1859 first edition. So you can try using it as a one-time pad if you want. And the original text with concordance of the Rubaiyat. So, Jimmy, we have some feedback, mysterious feedback from our listeners. Um, This is all coming from our recent episode on the third secret of Fatima, the the second part of that two-part discussion of that mystery. And the first feedback comes from Alan on Facebook, who says, My understanding is that the text of the third secret has been shown to the public, both on television and in exhibition, and it is clear that it is a single folded sheet of paper with writing on four sides. So the four pages of the text on the Vatican website are from a single folded sheet of paper. Thank you, Alan. That would explain the different claims that have been made about the number of pieces of paper. If it's one folded sheet so that it looks like four independent things, when you photocopy it, that would make sense. And then Jenny sent an email. She said, uh, the exact words from the angel, penance, 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 have perplexed me. In English, one might assume repent is what might be meant. But penance is what comes after repentance. Is the message that being sorry for our sins and the wrong we do isn't enough? How does and why does the exact word penance fit into the vision since it's the only word heard in the vision? Seems like it might be important. It almost feels like whenever discussing the secret, it's simply mentioned and then ignored as everything else is analyzed to the nth degree. Well, I certainly agree, Jenny. People do tend to analyze and and even overthink some of the stuff in The Third Secret, whereas the fundamental message is obviously penance. In terms of what that means, I wouldn't try to draw too rigid a distinction between repentance and penance. Repentance is the inward disposition that leads one to turn away from sinful behavior. And then penance is something one does in the wake of that as a natural outgrowth of turning away from a sin 
you want to find things to do to make up for it in some way, even if it's just a gesture of I'm sorry. And so um, ever since biblical times, people have expressed their repentance by doing penance like fasting or wearing a hair shirt or throwing dust on your head. Those are some of the ways they did penance in the Old Testament. Similarly, fasting is part of Christian practice. Jesus didn't say if you fast, but when you fast, do it this way. And so penance is part of the Christian life as well. And historically, it's certainly been understood in a Catholic context is there's an organic connection between the two. And we shouldn't try to sever that organic connection, because if you do penance without the repentance, it's not effective. You know, you're, you need to repent um, actually inwardly, uh, not just do an external action to say sorry. You need to mean it inwardly. And then if you mean it inwardly, it's natural to express that somehow outwardly. That's just human nature. It's the way God built us. And so there's meant to be an organic connection between repentance and penance. And I would say when the angel says penance, 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 he means do both. So Scott comments via YouTube, guys, thank you so much for this. I've been struggling for a few weeks with a recurring doubt, looking for signs and evidence that the Catholic faith is a real part of the real universe. These two episodes came at just the right time. Thank you. Scott, we're so glad they helped. This is something that is a recent example of a, you know, supernatural phenomenon that has really good evidence supporting it and that does provide confirmatory evidence for the Catholic faith. It's not the ultimate basis for the faith. It's not even apologetically. I would point to things like the resurrection of Christ, which there are very good apologetic arguments for as even more important. But this is modern confirmatory evidence. And so uh, we're so glad it helped. And it's one of the reasons we do what we do at StarQuest, which is we produce shows about interesting topics, whether it's specifically Catholic, like the Third Secret of Fatima, or not incompatible, like the Summerton Man mystery, or Doctor Who, or Star Trek. But, But we do it from a Catholic perspective, and we hope that that provides a foundation or an aid or some kind of perspective that that helps your faith. So thank you, Scott. I really do appreciate that confirmation of what we're doing. Jay writes via YouTube. Thanks, Jimmy. This was very interesting. My memories of 1985 could have easily been a lot different. And they could still be a lot different if we're ever able to get the flux capacitor working. <laughs> Marty, we're going back. <laughs> Michael writes on YouTube, you omitted to mention the Severomorsk disaster of May 13 to 17, 1984, when a massive chain of explosions resulted in the deaths of at least 200 to 300 people and the destruction of at least 900 of the Soviet Northern Fleet's missiles and torpedoes. Right. So the Severomorsk disaster happened following John Paul II's consecration of Russia, and it was a significant blow to the Soviet military posture that could have helped deter them from launching the nuclear war that Sister Lucia later talked about. Uh, Jimmy, what are some mysterious headlines for this week? Since Summerton Man may have been a spy, I thought I would have a theme and mysterious headline on government secrets. Uh, one of them is about a new technology that Summerton Man could have used if it had existed back in 1948, military tooth radios. It's Ooh. possible to build a radio into a tooth now and let you communicate without an external apparatus. 
And that would be quite interesting for spies. Just don't accidentally oh. activate your uh, arsenic pill tooth <laughs> instead right. of your radio tooth. <laughs> yeah. Got to keep the tooth straight. Yes. Little dental joke. There. Yes, there. <laughs> um, also, there is an article on the 440 hertz government music conspiracy. Mm. Uh, back in the day, there were no international standards for tuning pianos, but governments have seemingly colluded to establish 440 hertz as the official definition of middle A. And this has some people thinking it's a secret international government conspiracy that is ruining our music. So check out the secret uh, 440 hertz government music conspiracy. So, Jimmy, in a second, I'm going to ask uh, what our next episode is going to be about. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Andrew G., Ricardo G., John S., Steve N., and Benjamin B., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next uh, episode is a patron-requested episode on the fatal UFO encounters in Colares, Brazil. All right, so that's it from us. What did you think about this Tamam Shud case, the mysterious death of the Somerton Man, which has been called, again, one of Australia's most profound mysteries. Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to, for example, the book from Kerry uh, Greenwood on this case and all the other materials, all the other books from other episodes of Mysterious World. Uh, when you purchase from that store, you support the work of SQPN and help us continue making these shows. You can find links to all of Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the Mysterious Headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Quest.